In Hebrews chapter 6, on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse in the book of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 this evening. All right, let's pray together. Father, as we read through your word, we pray that you would bring hope to our souls. You're the God of hope, and would you breathe that within us? And if we become sluggish or discouraged or despondent, Lord, would you move us? And we know that that can only happen through you. So we pray that you would touch our hearts, that we would see you, Jesus, in a greater way. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Moving towards maturity, growth is gradual but powerful. A lot of times growth that we see in nature in our own lives, it's it's very slow, it's gradual, but it's also powerful. But growth is natural and it's beautiful. But the lack of growth is concerning, isn't it? If there's not growth, let's say in in a child's life physically, that is very, very concerning to parents and, and doctors. Culturally, this is described in the life of a child as failure to thrive. If you've got a, a young child, an infant that's not growing, the doctor might say to a parent, your, your, parent, your child is, is failing to, to thrive. As a person gets into adulthood, uh, if they don't ever launch out of their parents' house, we call this a failure to launch, don't we? So, you know, that, that the growth process all of a sudden uh, just, just came to this place and then didn't result in, in launching. Now, if you're an adult and you're living with your parents, I don't mean to offend you. There's a lot of good reasons to be living uh, with your parents. I'm just saying culturally that's described as failure to launch, right? So that, what do we see in this section of scripture in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews chapter 6 is that we're really being challenged to move towards maturity. The Holy Spirit is writing through a human author. We don't know for sure who the human author is. And at the end of chapter 5 says, you know, some of you should be at the place where you should be teachers. You should be moving forward in in maturity, but for some reason this has stalled out in your life. And chapter 6 then continues this thought or continues this exhortation. If you remember in the book of Hebrews, what is the primary way of learning in this book? through contrast. And I think it's a powerful way to learn. We've talked about how do you know a good Mexican restaurant by experiencing a bad Mexican restaurant? How do you know a great burger by having a bad burger, don't you? And so what we're going to look at in chapter six is once again is a contrast. And the first part of chapter six, we see someone that's not maturing and there's a warning that is given to them. And then the end of chapter 6, we see Abraham. And Abraham is an example of someone who endured in faith, who continued to grow closer to the Lord as he walked here on this earth. And until we go home to be with the Lord, God is longing for maturity in our lives. He's longing for us to grow more like Christ. And hopefully we haven't gotten to a place where we're comfortable or complacent are, are sluggish, and we've said, I've kind of accepted that this is as far as I'm going to go in my relationship with Christ. So it's a challenge to move towards maturity. So verse 1, therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ. So Paul says, we're going to leave the basic things. We're going to leave the ABCs. Nothing wrong with the ABCs, but it's time to read, Right? Like, what's the point of learning the alphabet, learning phonics, learning all of the rules so that you can read? You know, it's a joy to see in a child's life when they're able to go to the library, pick out a book, and read, right? It's, all, it's a whole new world and the love of learning. And Paul's saying, it's time to leave some of these elementary things. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. Those things have their place. But now let's continue on. Let's go on to perfection, And that phrase really stood out to me. Let us go on. Let let us keep going. Let us press on. Let us keep keep maturing. And let's go towards perfection. And the the word perfection really is maturity. Let us continue to press on to become more like Christ. Not that we're going to be perfect this side side of heaven, but there's always going to be more room for growth. What keeps me from growing? Why am I not growing? That's a question maybe to ask of ourselves this evening. 
The Hebrew church seems to be stuck, and, and why are they stuck? Ponder that question for a bit, and we'll come back to it. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. So Paul, for a moment, he's going to lay out a few of the elementary things. He's saying these are a few things that we're going to move past. And the first he says, we're not going to go back and lay this foundation from dead works and faith towards God. The Hebrew church is in danger of leaving the confidence of the gospel and being saved by grace and going back to the law and trusting the law in order to receive righteousness from God. And Paul's saying, do we really have to go over that again? Those are dead works. We're we're not going to lay this foundation that those dead works need to be repented of. To come to that place of realizing I can't please God through the law, through my own works, and turning away from works to receive God's free gift of, of grace and salvation that comes through the old covenant. He goes on and he says of the doctrine of baptisms. Now in the original language, the Greek, that the New Testament was written in Greek, this letter was written in Greek, this is ceremonial cleansings. And some translations even translate it that way. The doctrine of baptisms or the doctrine of cleansings. Remember, these are Hebrews that are receiving this letter and being under the old covenant, they always had to do cleansings, always had to do bathing. And, and, and so he says, this. we don't have to go back to coming to the understanding that this doesn't need to be a part of your relationship with God under the new covenant. This is part of leaving the law behind. In Israel, as there's lots of looking into the ruins and digging up old cities and synagogues, you find all of the, these baths the, where they would do the cleansing. And he's saying, we don't have to go over this Again, this doctrine of of ceremonial cleansings or of laying on of hands. And so Paul considered this to be one of the basic things of why would you lay hands on, on someone? And throughout the New Testament, we see praying for one another with the laying on of hands. Now, that can be kind of creepy if you're not used to it, right? Someone says, hey, can I pray with you? And you're like, sure, that sounds great. And then they put their hand on your shoulder. Like, why, why are you touching me? You know, like, you're in my personal space. And we as Americans, we, we really value our, our personal space. I remember one of the first times I traveled internationally, and I just felt like everybody is way too close to me. I don't understand this. Like, there's a, there's a bubble, and you're invading my bubble. And, and that kind of happens when someone prays for you, and they put their, their hand on, on your shoulder. They're not just weird. It's, it's the way God intended it. You know, he, when we pray for each other, that... We put a hand on someone's shoulder, lift them up to the Lord, and ask that God would do a work in, the, in their lives. In the New Testament, we see many times God pouring out spiritual gifts and pouring out the baptism of the Holy Spirit through the, the laying on of hands or of the resurrection of the dead, Christ being risen from the dead, Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection and of eternal judgment. What causes someone to receive eternal judgment? That's something we should be able to answer if they reject Jesus Christ as their Savior through the course of their life. Not just once or twice, but throughout their whole life, rejecting the finished work and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. So, Paul's not upset at these guys. He's not angry. You know, don't, well, I just made a mistake there, didn't I? We don't know that it was the Apostle Paul. But obviously, I guess I think that it was the Apostle Paul. (laughs) The author of Hebrews is not upset with them. And he says, look, I'll I'll go over this with you again. Even though that this speech should be something that you understand and and something that you should be moving uh, past towards. We talked about this last week as well. If, If you're new in Christ, don't beat yourself up. If you're a year or two in Christ and you're saying, we just read through that list and all of that sounded like Greek to me. You know, like, Eric, you went through that so fast, and, and I, don't, I don't know the ABCs. Man, praise the Lord. You, you got to learn somewhere. Be thankful for where you're at and say, God, I want to learn, and, and, and I want to I wanna grow. So God's not upset with, with where they're at. He says, I'll go over this again with you if God permits. So he comes into this warning that is given to this group. He says, for if it is impossible... For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift 
and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So what we see in verse 4 is this group has a genuine experience with God. They're enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, and they become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Each of those words identify an experience with God. Enlightened, partakers, and tasted. He says, it's impossible if you are enlightened and you've tasted the heavenly gift and you're a partaker of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So also, if you've experienced the goodness of God's word, if you've got into God's word and gone, oh, it's so good, and you've tasted and seen that God is good, and also there's an eternal expectation. You've experienced of the power of the age to come. You're looking forward to heaven, like we talked about on Saturday and Sunday. And then verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, first thing that we've got to understand before we take a more detailed look at verse 6 is Satan knows scripture and loves to use it. Did you realize that? He knows it better than we know it, and it's one of his favorite tools to use against people and specifically believers. How do we know this? When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, Satan quoted Old Testament scripture. He quoted out of the book of Psalms, and this is what he said to Jesus. He said, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, what did he leave out? What did Satan leave out? He left out, keep you in all of your ways. He was asking Jesus to do something that was outside of his ways and misquoting scripture. So for some, you will hear verse 6, and Satan will twist it in your understanding, and you will hear tonight, there is no hope for me. God cannot forgive me. I tasted of the word of God. I partook of the Holy Spirit. I fell away, and there's no opportunity for me to come back to the Lord. There's no opportunity to me, for me to receive forgiveness. So whenever we're looking at a particular verse in Scripture, we have to go whole part whole. What do I mean by that? We've got to look at the whole entirety of God's counsel. We take the individual of God's word, the part, and then we put that verse back into the whole. Whole part whole. You with me? Does that make sense? So what does the entirety of God's word say and communicate? Can you come back to the Lord if you fall away? Yes, you can. Where do we see that in Scripture? We see that in the prodigal son very clearly. He was a partaker. He tasted the goodness of the father's house. He left, and then he came back, and the father said, welcome home, didn't he? We see Peter falling away, and he comes back to the Lord. He denied the Lord. I don't know Christ. Christ died for his sins, steadfast love of God, rose again, comes to Peter, and restores Peter, doesn't he? So we know that God welcomes back the repentant sinner. So with that in mind, what in the world does verse 6 mean? You know, what is this that, that says, if you, if you fall away, there's no way for you to be renewed to repentance because you're crucifying the Son of God again and putting him to open shame. In the context of the book of Hebrews, what does it mean to fall away? What were they in danger of doing? Rejecting the finished work of Jesus Christ. And saying, look, we don't need Christ to die for us because we can go back under the works of the law. This is a warning of minimizing and rejecting the finished work of Jesus Christ and beginning to trust in your own efforts and your own works. Does that make sense? And here's where I think that we don't want to minimize the heaviness or the weight of God's word. Any day that I don't believe that Jesus is God, that he died for my sins and rose again and declaring him the Lord of my life is a terrible place for me to be spiritually. And I wouldn't want to die in that condition. It doesn't matter 
what I prayed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 months ago, if I stand before you today and I say, I don't believe Jesus is God. I don't believe he died for my sins. I can save myself through my own works. I would not want to die this evening. Because from a biblical perspective, I don't know where that leaves you. See, what salvation is, is an abiding faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Do we struggle? Yes. Is there days that we sin? Yes. Is there days that we fall away? Absolutely. But what remains, what should remain, is I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that, that he rose again. Now, can someone go through a lapse of faith and come back to that understanding that Jesus is God? I believe so. But context is so important here. Paul, or I did it again, Paul. Maybe I should just go with it. I think it's Paul. Is, is writing to a group that is right teeter-tottering saying, I don't know if it's that important that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And he's saying, no, you need to continue in that. You need to abide in that. You need to follow through with that and, and continue to trust that Jesus Christ is enough. Th does that make sense? Now, before we go on, just so that you have a fuller understanding of this verse, I want to try to equip you for the different arguments that you might hear from verse 6, okay? So here's some possibilities of what verse 6 might mean, now that we've had the understanding of just a few moments ago. Is this could be referring to hypothetical believers. So what does that mean? That even though it says partakers and they tasted the word of God, that someone that got close to the things of God but never truly gave themselves to the things of God. Others say this refers to actual believers. You know, somebody who was born again, who received Christ as their Savior, but then came to a place where they rejected the finished work of, of Christ. And then there's others that say this is apparent believers. You know, uh, again, applying to the surface. You can get lost in the weeds on this passage. Let me just tell you that. And you can go down these rabbit trails of once saved, always saved, and, and predestination, and man's free will. But I think the clear application of the text is this, is it's a strong exhortation to continue trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And why would we not want to do that? Amen? Why, why wouldn't we not want to be in that place of trusting that Christ is our Savior, that he died for us and rose again? Verse 7, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs, useful for those by whom it's cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned up. Think what the scripture is declaring to us in this, is if you've been a partaker, if you've tasted the word, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, then there's going to be fruit. There's going to be fruit. Gives the example of when the rain comes, the rain then with the sun causes there to be growth, causes there to be fruit. We had a tremendous amount of moisture this spring. You're probably seeing it in your yard, right? There's growth now that's taking place in, in your yard. So if Christ is my Savior. I believe that he died for me. If I'm reading the word of God, then that's going to result in fruit naturally taking place in my life. So we're not saved by works, but the works are evidence of our salvation. So he's writing to this group and he's saying, hey, if you don't see any evidence in your life, if you don't see any fruit uh, in your life, then, then re-examine. Now again, Satan's going to want to use the word for condemnation. The Holy Spirit uses the word for conviction. This isn't perfection. If you can look at your life and you go, you know what, I'm not who I was before I received Christ as my Savior. I'm far from perfect, but I know that I love Christ and I know that Christ is growing me. The, the fruit is important. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. In verse 9 but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, 
that we speak in this manner. The author of Hebrews is saying, look, I don't think this is you guys. I see different things in you guys. I see you loving Christ. I see Christ impacting your life and changing your life. And he encourages them in the fruit that he sees in their lives. In verse 10, and here now we see the contrast. So the first nine verses have been a strong exhortation to someone who's not maturing and not appreciating and continuing in abiding faith in Christ. That's who that warning is given to. And then verse 10 through the end of the chapter gives us an example of someone who is continuing in faith, who is continuing to endure in faith. It says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you've ministered to the saints and do not minister. I hope you're a Bible underliner. It helps me a lot to remember where verses are in my Bible, to, to have a Bible that becomes like a, a best friend. Sometimes you don't know where the reference is, but you remember where you underlined it. This is a verse to hold on to, isn't it? The character of God is he's not unjust. He's just. And he will not forget your work, your labor of love. He will not overlook your, your labor of love or, or your work that you've shown towards his name. This, this is part of, of the fruit. Man, I'm not perfect, but these are things that I've really attempted to do because Christ has led me in obedience to Christ. And you're doing it towards the body, towards saints, and you minister towards believers in your family and in the body of Christ and, and in our community, then God is going to reward you. And one of the things that we see throughout scripture is God is very gracious in the way that he sees our labor of love and the way that he gives reward to it. Now, you may want to write a few of these down. Some of them will sound familiar. Matthew 25, verse 40, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, as much as you do to one of the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. God says, look, I saw what you did to the least among you. And when you did it to the least, you did it unto me. And then also in Mark 9, verse 41, it says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly he will by no means lose his reward. So have you ever given a cup of cold water to a believer? God says, I'm going to reward you for giving that cup of cold water to a believer. I mean, how might he reward for a really good cup of coffee? I mean, have you given a, a believer a really nice cup of coffee, God's just like, here's the rewards. Those working out in the well, the church's coffee bar, I mean, God's just probably like dumping the rewards on them because they just keep pouring out the coffee to all of us, right? Why are they serving us coffee? Because they love Jesus. They want us to be caffeinated, right? Like, you got to go listen to Pastor Eric for 45 minutes. You're going to need this, right? We wouldn't think of a reward for a cup of water. We go... You know, that, that's, that's not something that God would look at. And, and how God measures fruit and we measure fruit may be two entirely different things. You may be sitting here and going, I'm not even sure I'm saved after this verse, after this chapter. And God's like, no, you, you love me and you love people and, and you're giving out water and hugs and smiles and coffee. And yeah, you're not perfect, but you're serving in, in, in my name. I'm going to reward you. And Galatians 6, verse 7 to 10, listen, it says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever man sows he will reap. For he who sows to the flesh will also reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Numbers chapter 7 is a fascinating chapter in this regard. Take a look at it later tonight. You find a group of leaders coming to give gifts to God. And what's fascinating is you've got some from each tribe, 12 tribes of Israel, and they all give the same thing. The exact same thing, and it's listed out. Now, if I were God, which it's really good that I'm not, is I would paraphrase that chapter, and it would be very short. 
I'd say, here's all these leaders. They all gave the same thing, Numbers chapter 8. And it's a really long chapter because God lists each person that gave the gift and in detail what they gave. The next person that gave the gift, in detail what they gave. And even though it's an exact duplicate, he takes the time to record it in his word. Why does he do that? Because he's saying, I am just to not forget your labor of love. You were doing this unto me, and I'm going to reward you. The big idea of Hebrews 6, continue, press on, move forward, don't give up, keep trusting in Christ, keep serving. And one of the big motivations is God sees and God will reward. Maybe you've been doing things for your spouse for eons now, and you're like, they don't notice, they don't care, they don't appreciate. God sees, you're doing it unto him, God will reward. Maybe you've been serving your kids, and you're like, I don't know if they get it. I don't know if they appreciate it. God sees, he knows, he rewards. You leave living out your single life unto the Lord in faithfulness. Like no one sees, no one cares. I'm an outcast. No one appreciates the stances that I'm taking for, for purity. God sees, he knows. Maybe at your job, you're like, I work hard and I'm overlooked. Not in God's kingdom. He sees. And his reward comes in his time. The reward may come in heaven, but he is just. He will not overlook your, your labor of love. Verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Have hope till the end. Continue trusting in Christ for salvation. Don't give up. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here's the exhortation, verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We have two commands in verse 12. The first is, don't become sluggish. As we read this paragraph, what we're in danger of losing is hope. Hope is the expectation of coming good. That God is working in this situation. When we lose hope, our hearts are filled with despair, and it's easy for us to become sluggish or slothful, not applying ourselves to loving the Lord and loving others. We get complacent, maybe in our hearts and minds, we say it's not worth it. Man, I just, I just want to punt. God really used this verse in my life probably close to eight, nine years ago. It was one of my most difficult times in ministry. And I was, I was, I was really struggling. And most people wouldn't know to the degree that I was struggling. And if I were honest, now looking back, I think some despair had entered my heart and mind. I didn't have expectation of coming good uh, in my heart, in my mind. And a pastor at the time that I didn't know very well, uh, actually just had lunch with him today, but at the time I didn't know him very well. Out of the blue, he sent me an email and he says, Eric, I've been praying for you and God has really put Hebrews 6.12 on my heart. Now that's kind of gutsy for him to take that step of faith and write that verse. It wasn't a verse that I, I was aware of that was on my radar or in my scripture memory, and it's exactly what I needed to hear. I had become sluggish. I had become slothful. I had allowed the hurt to beat me down to the point where I wasn't having hope for, for the future. And so that part of the verse really woke me up. And maybe tonight you need to be woken up. You know, what was going on in this group of Hebrew believers that they'd become sluggish? And the Holy Spirit's saying, wake up, apply yourself, be diligent, continue growing, keep, keep pressing on in hope and, and in faith. But then it gets really practical in verse 12. And this is what really encouraged me. It says, but imitate those who through faith and patience or endurance inherit the promise. So look for people in Scripture and look for people that you know in this Christian life, they didn't give up, but they continued to persevere 
in faith and hope and in through time, they inherited the promises. In time, they entered into the reward that God had prepared for them. And the great thing about imitating is we get to copy. We just get to look and we get, get to copy. And we see this in young children. They're, they're great at copying, sometimes too great, right? They repeat some of the things we say in traffic. It's like, oh man, <laughs> that's convicting, right? You're imitating me right, right now. And so you watch people in scripture, you watch people in life that love the Lord and you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to imitate that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to copy that in my own life in, in a good way. And now we have Abraham, one to look at that we can imitate. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he swore by no one greater, he swore by himself. This is our example of hope, Abraham. God speaks to him. And when God gives him the promise, he swears by himself because there's no one greater. You know, sometimes someone may say, well, I swear on my mother's grave. What's the essence of that? My mom is greater. Her death is valuable. So my commitment is based on her character and her death. So I'm really going to be there. And God would say to us, you know, you don't have to do that. Just let your yes be yes and, and your no be no. But we get the idea of swearing by somebody greater. And so there's no one greater than God. So he swore by himself. He, he commits himself. The promise that was given to Abraham is that he would inherit the land of Canaan, which is Israel. And God says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply you to where your descendants are going to be as the stars. Quite a promise. You're going to have a land and you're going to have a people. And through this people, all of the nations will be blessed. What a promise that God gave to him. And that's in Genesis 12. Verse 14 saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiply I will multiply you. In verse 15, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So we have to go back into Genesis a little bit to understand how long Abraham endured before God gave him a child. This cannot be fulfilled without a child. You're going to have descendants. These descendants are going to multiply, have their own land, and bless all of the nations. Here Abraham believes this of God, and yet years go by before he receives the promise. So God spoke this to him in Genesis chapter 12, and then God changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. Now, if I'm Abraham and I don't have any kids, I'm like, this is a cruel joke. I'm already exalted father, and I'm not a father, and now my name's going to mean father of a whole bunch, father of a, a multitude. Sarah got quite the upgrade. Her name was Sarai, which means quarrelsome. <laughs> she must have been pretty argumentative as a young girl. Sarai, and her name was changed to Sarah, which means princess, yet still no children. Genesis 13, he gets to see the land that would be given to him, to walk in the land, the length and the width. And God says, I will give it to you, but still no children. Genesis 15, God says, I'm your exceedingly great reward, yet Abraham remains childless. What happens in Genesis 16? Abraham struggles. Abraham has a lapse of faith. Figures this isn't going to happen with, with Sarah. So he goes into his handmaiden Hagar and has Ishmael, but that wasn't the promised child. To see this chapter all the way through, even though Abraham had a lapse in his behavior, he hadn't fallen away. He was still God's child. He continued to have relationship and faith with the Lord. So, so it helps us understand the first part of Hebrews chapter 6. And then finally, in Genesis 21, Isaac is born Abraham's an old man. Sarah is an old woman. God waited, and he waited, and he waited to give him the promise. Abraham continued to believe. Not perfect, but continued to believe. Continued to press forward. How easy it would have been for Abraham to get sluggish, to be filled with despair. 
And this is an example for us of the Christian life and the reward is heaven. Amen? So we go, we will get there. God will be faithful to his promise. So I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep going one day at a time, pressing into the things of God, holding on to his promises. After he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater, an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. That's what we've already talked about. In verse 17, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed by an oath. God wants to be abundantly clear in his communication. He wants to show us something to the greatest degree. He says, the heirs of promise, which is us, We've received the promises of God through faith that his counsel is immutable. Means that it is not changing. That he will not change his word, change his promise to us. And it's confirmed by by an oath. In verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. So there's two things that are unchanging, two things that are unmoving. Did you catch that? The first is the obvious, that it's impossible for God to lie. That is a wonderful thing about God. As we look at this lesson of faith and continuing to trust Christ and trust the finished work of the cross, God meant it when he said, if you trust in me, trust in the work of my son, you'll be saved. God's not going to change his mind on salvation. God's not going to change his mind on his promises. It's unchanging. It's immutable. So then we have hope's confidence. So we've had hope's example, which was Abraham. But now in our hope, we have a strong consolation. And that is that God's not going to lie. God's character is my refuge. So he's not going to change. And the fact that he's not going to change then gives me a strong consolation. That's, that's immutable. Who have fled for a refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Hope's offer. We have an offer in hope. We have to flee to the refuge. We have to flee to God's character. So we can go through our days sluggish, beat down, filled with despair, or in the midst of pain and brokenness when we feel like giving up, to run to God for him to be our refuge. The mental picture is of refugees. Refugees flee for help, don't they? They, they, they flee for their very existence. And we're fleeing to God to be our refuge. We're in plight. Our existence is put in danger and we're running to the Lord. Here's a few promises of God being our refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed. That was Psalms 57.1. Psalms 90 verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run into it and are safe. Draw your attention again to Hebrews and look at the end of verse 18 to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. You got to lay hold of the hope. You got to run to to the refuge. It's there, but we have to take God up on his offer and say, okay, Lord, I, I'm not looking at my circumstances. I'm looking at the promise of, of eternity. How many times for, for Abraham... In his mind, was he looking at himself and looking over at Sarah and saying, well, this promise doesn't look very good, right? We're not having kids. We must have heard wrong from the Lord. Romans 4 tells us an amazing thing about Abraham is he didn't consider his own weakness when it came to the promise of God. Let me say that again. He didn't consider his own weakness when it came to the promise of God. He wasn't looking at himself. He was looking at God, and he's like, God's able to do this. I'm way past being able to have kids. 
Sarah's way past being able to have kids, and she's never been able to have kids. Why would, why would things change? And he's like, no, God said it, so I believe it. And he came into that refuge. He entered into that refuge. I know it's difficult, and our feelings often master us, but say, nope, my feelings aren't in charge. I know who God is. I know his promises. I know the promise of eternal life, and that is my refuge. In verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. So we've got hope's confidence, hope's offer, hope's example, but then hope's anchor. This hope, the hope that God's going to be faithful to his character, the faithful of his promises, eternal life, it is the anchor of my soul, sure and steadfast. Sure and steadfast. Tremendous, tremendous truth. As an individual that is the child of God, you are anchored. You are anchored. You think of these storms that come in, the East Coast and the West Coast. What do you do if you own a boat, a ship that is in the ocean? You better anchor that sucker. You better hope that 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 anchor holds. And what God is saying is if you sink yourself into his goodness, his character, the promises of eternal life, that he will hold you. That hope will be the anchor for you. I've got the confident expectation of coming good. I know that I know that the best is yet to come because I'm not yet in heaven. So someday I'm going to be in heaven. And so that gives me the strength in the Lord, to get up, get out of bed, and say, I want to continue growing. I want to continue serving. I'm not going to shrink back. I'm not going to give up. My, my soul is anchored, and it's sure, and it's steadfast. Now get this, the anchor of Jesus is stronger than any storm of this life. Doesn't always feel that way, doesn't it? Like, man, I don't know if the anchor held. I feel like I'm getting tossed. I'm getting thrown around in this storm, but from God's perspective, he's like, look, you're anchored. You're connected. You're tied in with me. And that is the hope for, for your soul. Now, what I love about verse 19 is, and which enters the presence behind the veil. So when we think of an anchor, it's deep down into the ocean. And that anchor is sure and steadfast and is going to hold that boat, that ship in the storm. But our anchor, where is it located? Not in the depths of the ocean, but behind the veil in the presence of God. So if you picture us going through the storms of this life, you've got an anchor that's in heaven. And all of a sudden, we're feeling better about our anchor, aren't we? Because it's sure and steadfast. It's in the presence of God. It's in the promises of who Jesus is and his finished work, the hope of eternal life. As we go through trial, we're reminded about the hope that's set before us. We're reminded of, of that anchor, and that's what holds us. That's what causes us to continue in faith and endurance. So picture your anchor upward, not downward. In verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, so Jesus is the one who has gone before us, having become the high priest forever, to the order of Melchizedek. We think of forerunners, someone who has prepared the way. Lewis and Clark would be a forerunner. In the Old Testament, Joshua and Caleb were forerunners for the children of Israel going into the promised land. Jesus is the forerunner. He has entered behind the veil in the presence of the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's our high priest who has become the sacrifice for our sins, intercedes for us, is our advocate, pleading our case before the Father, and he's of the order of Melchizedek. We talked about this quite a bit in prior study, so if you, you missed it, you'll want to go back and, and listen to chapter 5 as we looked at the Melchizedek priesthood. Or you can just keep coming on Wednesday nights because we're going to get back into Melchizedek. I know you're really excited about that, but... Hebrews jumps back into the truth of Melchizedek as we continue in these chapters. So what do we have? We have a hope that's anchored. 
in the immutable character and promises of God. In heaven, which we get to access continually, we get to continually enter into the presence of God. Jesus, who has entered behind the veil, who's the high priest, he ministers continually and eternally for us. There's a poem that describes this hope, this anchor. It says, I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between. Through the storm, I safely ride till the turning of the tide, and it holds. My anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale. On my bark so small and frail, by his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. Romans 15 verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace through believing that you would abound in what? That you would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want, before we go, to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to do a work in our hearts and lives. Because it's one thing to look at the scripture and it's another thing to respond to it. And when you examine your soul, the condition of your soul, would you say very practically that you are living without hope? You don't have confidence for the future that God is good and that God is working. And it's caused you to be despondent. It's caused you to be sluggish. It's caused you to be overwhelmed with despair and pain. Jesus, our high priest, would want to come to us through believing, through trusting, and allow hope to overcome the things that we're feeling and that we're experiencing. Maybe some of it has even to do with current events. You look at the chaos politically in our country, the terrorist attack that took place this week in England, and you say, I just really don't have a lot of hope for tomorrow. I don't have it very much expectation that God is working. How does that fit in with Hebrews 6? How does that fit in with Abraham? God, this is crazy. This is chaos. I don't see your hand in this, but I know from your word that you're good and there's hope. I have expectation of what you're going to do in the days to come. Maybe there's real deep disappointment and there's deep hurt in your life. And because of that, it feels like hope has just departed from your life and from your conversations. Try to put yourself in Abraham and Sarah's shoes. He had to have some friends that came up to him and said, hey, why are you calling yourself Abraham? Father of multitude? Really? I mean, come on. Clearly, things aren't working. You're, you're not going to have kids. That's never going to happen. I just, I just want to try to land you in reality. I think Abraham and Sarah had been to enough baby showers. You know what I'm saying? It had to have been pretty painful when they heard once again that so-and-so was expecting, and they're like, well, I'm happy for you. And my husband told me he heard from God that we're going to have a boatload of kids. It just, it's him, really, it's him, it's not me. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Just get filled with despair and get filled with with despondency. But God wants us growing. God wants us moving towards maturity. What was happening to this group of Hebrew believers? They were stuck. Stuck and not engaging in a vibrant relationship with Christ, wanting to go back to works. Christ was not fresh. 
and their experience and their, their understanding. And then what did set in? Being sluggish, being despondent, saying, you know, it really doesn't matter if I love or serve people. It doesn't really matter the way that I behave. It doesn't really matter what I do with my time. I'm just food for worms. I'm just, I'm just going to coast it on out here. See, and then God's coming to us tonight and he's saying, look, I'm the God of the resurrection. I can bring life where there's death. And I think part of maturity is for us to be excited about tomorrow, not because of our circumstances or our successes or failures, but because of who Jesus is. You're, you pass through the veil. You're the forerunner. You made it to the other side. You finished the work. You promised eternal life. So I'm going to get up tomorrow knowing that you're present in my life, knowing that you're working in my life, knowing that you're working in those, those around me. You know, if Satan can't get us to deny Christ, I'm sure he would love for us to just finish out our life here on earth as walking zombies, right? And everybody's like, wow, I really want to become a Christian. Looks exciting, right? And then here's God saying, I want to fill you with hope. I want to fill you with, with believing. And if you're in that place tonight, I would encourage you to respond in a couple of ways. One is to take Hebrews 6 verse 12 as a challenge and say, okay, I have been despondent. I've been sluggish. I've been slothful. And I want to imitate those that have endured through faith. I'm going to learn from Abraham. I'm going to get up and I'm going to keep going. Have an honest conversation with Christ tonight as we come and take communion. Just pour out your heart before him. Meet with him. Say, Jesus, would you fill me with, with hope once again? Ask for prayer. We have all been there and will be there again at some point in our relationship with the Lord. Turn to our brother or sister in Christ. Say, hey, would you pray for me? I am completely feeling absent of hope. And then may the God of hope fill you with hope abundantly through believing. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're faithful to us. And Lord, we just ask that you would do a work through the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. And if we've become despondent and sluggish, just feel like giving up or punting and there's an absence of hope, would you fill us with hope? and joy, and peace through believing. May we abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you be gracious to, to meet with us and protect our hearts and protect our minds. We want to be in a place where we continue moving forward. We continue trusting in you, continue abiding in you. And Lord, we declare through faith that you are good, and we know you're working. You're working in the nations. You're working in our country. You're working in our families and in our lives. So would you meet us afresh in communion in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's